Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, the fourth chapter of the letter to the church at Ephesus. We'll be looking at the first verse, and while our text is very brief, I would encourage you to open your Bible because we're going to be uh, looking at others through this book and seeing how it ties together and trust that it it helps to have your, your Bible where you can see those verses and apply it personally in your life. J. Wilbert Chapman was an evangelist and pastor who ministered back in the late 1800s and then into the early 1900s. He actually began preaching with D.L. Moody, the evangelist, and had a strong influence on the ministry of Billy Sunday, another evangelist from that time period. He wrote several hymns, including the words to Jesus, What a Friend for Sinners. And during one of his evangelistic meetings, there was an opportunity for testimonies, and a man stood up and he shared the testimony of how because of difficult circumstances in his life, he had ended up in a very poor economic situation. He spent a year on the streets begging and seeking to just get money for his survival. And one day, he touched the shoulder of a man and and he asked the man, he said, Mr., could you spare a dime? And when the man turned around, the beggar realized that he was staring into the face of his own father. And he said, Father, do you you know me? And this father threw his arms around him and he said, Oh, my son, I have found you. He said, A dime, all that I have belongs to you. And he went on to say he had been looking for him for some time. And this was before you could put, you know, posters on the, you know, the telephone poles and pictures on milk cartons and social media to get information out. And the man told the people in the meeting, he said, I was a beggar and I stood before my own father asking for 10 cents when for years he had been seeking me to give me all that he had. Now let me ask you, Do you think that beggar's life changed that day? Do you think that after a a nice meal, a shower, clean clothes, a good night's sleep, and a comfortable bed, he got up the next morning and took his rags, his tattered clothes, and put them back on and went back out on the street to ask for dimes? I don't think so. Because the realization of his father's love and the recognition of what his father was making available to him would change his life. That family relationship would make a difference. And so it is with us. When we are followers of Jesus Christ, we are, we are the children of a king. And when you realize what God has done for you, that what he is doing in the world through the multifaceted wisdom of, of seeking to bring glory to his name through the church, it really should change how we live. When you understand the wealth of his promises, the power that he offers us, we ought to walk worthy of that. 
And what I want us to see this morning really is our theme, is that a genuine Christian, our belief ought to result in a change of conduct. That we ought to reflect the new life and the unity that God has created in Christ Jesus. We come to Ephesians 4, verse 1, and it really introduces us to the new manner of living, the the new walk that as believers we would have because of our relationship with God the Father. If you have your Bibles open, look with me at just the first verse. We're going to look at this verse this morning and then expand upon it, but it says in Ephesians 4, verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. This verse is really the turning point in this letter, the the letter to the church at Ephesus. The attention is now shifting from the doctrine to the practical, from from the, the theoretical or the theology into the practice. We're moving from what God has done in Christ to what we are to do and what God is doing in the church. In the first 66 verses of this book, in chapters 1 through 3, there is only one imperative, and that is more a call for reflection than a command thou shalt. It's it's in chapter 2, verse 11, where it says, remember. And it's calling us to remember where we came from. It's calling us to remember what our life was like before Christ. But beginning in chapter 4, there are going to be numerous exhortations, commands, imperatives of how we are to live. Now, when you come to that point of changing from the doctrine to the practical, there there can be a couple of responses. You know, some people might say, finally, (laughs) we're getting to the practical stuff. Others might say, well, you know, I really like digging into the doctrinal discussion. But understand, Scripture doesn't separate these two. We need both. We need to think properly in order to live purely. And that's what we have found in Ephesians. Ephesians 4.1 has been referred to as the topic sentence for the rest of this letter. Because what we're seeing is that genuine Christian belief must result in conduct that reflects that new life and the unity that that God has created in Christ. Christian belief needs to lead to Christian conduct. Because genuine belief impacts how we live, our behavior. And I've said before, but I think it's worth repeating for us, a faith that doesn't change our life is not a faith that's going to save our souls. And this is really what the book of James is is dealing with. That there's going to be that changed life that comes about. that, That behavior is a response to what God has done. That, that it's, it's a change in our life. So the first thing I want us to see this morning is I want us to consider the motivation for our walk. Why are we doing this? This, as I said, is the turning point. I, therefore, and that word therefore, as you've heard many times, we need to stop and see what it's there for. But it's, it's taking us back to those first three chapters. The culmination of, of this that was at the end of chapter 3, that unto him be glory in the church. See, chapters 1 through 3 are reflecting God's plan, a purpose that was hidden for thousands of years, but was now being revealed. That is, it was a mystery. And Paul says, I I get to unfold this mystery. So where chapters 1 through 3 are describing the wealth that we have in Christ, chapters 4 through 6 are now describing our walk in Christ. 
That because of God's gracious provision, it's a privilege that, that carries solemn responsibility. So the first thing I want us to see in this is we have to strive to glorify God. We are called for that purpose. As it says at the end of chapter, chapter 3, that now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think according to the power that works in us, just piling on those descriptions, he can do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we can ask or even imagine. And then the reason for that is verse 21. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That we're called to glorify God. That God's plan of bringing Jews and Gentiles together into one body, the church, is so that he would receive the glory. I mean, these were two groups that were worlds apart. And he's brought them together and, and put them into one family, one body, one building. All these terms are being used in this, in, in this book. And, and the purpose is that it would show the wisdom of God. And not just in this world, but as we saw in chapter 3, verse 10, to angelic beings in heavenly places. That when they look at the church, there ought to be, look at what God has done. So the church is to be parallel with Christ as the means of bringing glory to God, that we are to do God's will and glorify Him just like Jesus did. And that really is what's being brought out here. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. The, the, the motivation is we belong to Christ. And so our goal at Tri-City Baptist Church is that we would exalt God, that we would edify believers, and that we would evangelize the lost to make and mature disciples who will then minister to other people as we demonstrate Christ-likeness. We mirror Christ-likeness. And so we strive to glorify God in our walk that it is, that is worthy of Him in our worship, that it honors Him. And that's why as we come together, our first question has to be, what do we do to glorify God? And yet how often is the first question people ask today, is, what does the church have for me? Well, that really, that's an important question, but it's not the lead question. The first question is, what are we doing to honor and glorify God? So we strive to glorify Him, and then secondly, we serve to please God. We're seeking to please Christ, that we present our bodies, as it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, as living sacrifices. That, that is our spiritual service of worship. So I come and yield myself. I surrender. And, and we take the knowledge that we have, and then we have to apply it. The theoretical has to become practical. And, and I, I don't want us to miss this, because you first have to be in Christ before we're told what to do for Christ. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saves us. It's not me earning some favor with God. We talked about this last Sunday night as I, I gave a brief update on our, our trip to Italy and Israel and Egypt and, and that all world religions fall into one of two categories and we find this in Romans chapter 10. They are doing something to receive acceptance with God or trusting in what Christ has done. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Well, before we can do, we have to have trusted what Christ has done. And, and I don't want us to lose sight of that fact. It's not a work salvation. But, but Paul, we don't trace our, our faith back to the church. We trace it back to Christ. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. And so the, the foundational thought is that you can't 
in, before you can live the Christian life, you have to first be a Christian. And that word has lost its meaning in our culture, but it means that we're a Christ follower. We sometimes, we add clarifiers, the, a born-again Christian. Well, if you're not born again, you're not a Christian. That's John chapter 3. Ye must be born again. But the pra- to, to we, we're to seeking to become in practice what we already are in position in Christ, that we are accepted in the beloved, as chapter 1 told us. We are adopted, we are redeemed, we've been bought back. So the question we have to ask is, are you personally living a new life in Christ? Are you demonstrating new life? Number one, are you spiritually alive? Do you have life? And, and, and I'm not asking, is there a date written in the front of your Bible, but is there a pulse? Does your heart beat for the Lord? Is there a desire? It's not that we, we, we haven't arrived, we're not all that we should be, but is there a desire to serve the Lord? Are we seeking to please Him? Is that, that question even on our radar? Because when we talk about our walk, we're talking about our conduct. And so we're seeking to please him and realize that if you please God, it doesn't matter who you displease. And if you don't please God, it doesn't matter who is pleased. And when we look at our culture, we have to realize that if we're going to live godly for Christ Jesus, the Bible says we will suffer persecution. Now let it be because we're living godly and not just because we're being obnoxious. You know, some people get persecuted because of their temperament and they want to blame it on their testimony. No, we, we want to live in a such a way that God is honored and glorified. But are we positionally in Christ? And if so, then are we in practice matching that position? That's what we're asking here. That's our motivation, that God would be glorified, that we're serving Christ. Secondly, we need to consider the manner of our walk. That as Christians, we have a certain way that we are to walk. And that's really what the rest of this letter is going to discuss. That a Christian walk is going to be laid out. And there are a number of things I want us to consider. And I think it's important for us. In fact, the, the emphasis for our academy, Tri-City Christian Academy this year, is the characteristics of our walk. Mrs. Brady has worked with our teachers and, and picked a number of these that we find in this passage and then some others. But dealing with training our children, our young people, our, our high school students, that they will think biblically in their life, in their conduct. And I think that's important because we have to realize that what we consider on Sunday morning isn't just for Sunday, it's for our life. It's for our, our week. And, and we live in a culture where it's very easy that we have the Bible app open on Sunday and then we live the other apps Monday through Friday. No, the Bible app has to always be running in the background of everything we do. And that's what we find through the rest of this book. So I want us to consider the first aspect of this that we find in, in really beginning in verse 2 then is that we're to walk in unity. I beseech you therefore the prisoners, prisoners of the ward, walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. And then it goes on in how that's to bring unity. Now if you think back to chapter 2 and what we considered, if you've been with us, if we've worked through Ephesians, we found how Gentiles who were afar off and Jews who were near are brought together, it says in verse 13 of chapter 2, by the blood of Christ. And because of that then, the Lord has created a new humanity. That's verse 15. And placing us into one body through the cross and putting to death the hostility that was there between the Jews and the Gentiles. That's verse 16. 
And so then it says that Christ came and preached peace. So chapter 2 is bringing that, and now we're going to find it here in chapter 4. And, and, and personally, I find this rather interesting when we see how it changes. Because when I read the end of chapter 3, if I didn't know what was coming in chapter 4, unto him be glory in the church, and I've read three chapters of what God has done, and I'm accepted in the beloved, I've been adopted, I've been redeemed, and, and all of this, and I'm saved to good works, and if, if I were to guess, okay, so what am I supposed to do now? Probably my first thoughts would be, okay, I need to be reading the Bible faithfully. I need to be growing in my prayer life. I need to be learning what it means to walk by faith and trusting the Lord in my daily decisions. And, and all of that is important. But that's not where chapter 4 goes. It actually begins by how we walk in the church with other people. Getting along with others. It's how we get along with believers in the church. And I find that convicting because sometimes I can look at my devotional life, my prayer life, and others say, okay, I need to improve, but I'm doing okay. Until somebody doesn't do what I want. And they rub me the wrong way. And it's like, what's wrong with them? It's like, okay, back to this. Because often it's our relationships with others that reveal how we're truly walking. And so that's where it begins. Walk in unity. God is glorified when we behave in the local church as he intended. To follow Christ who is the head of the body and to live for his glory. And, and understanding that, that's why it comes back to, okay, how are we glorifying Christ in the church? How are we serving him in the church? Because the church isn't all about me. We, we live in a very consumeristic culture. And we're taught that. And, and it does creep into our thinking as Christians, and we have to guard against it, that, that it's not all about us. You know, we can join a club, and we get to choose who we fellowship with. But we don't get to choose who comes into the church. God chooses that. He chose before the foundation of the world. And so we don't get to choose in, in the same way that, that we don't get to choose our physical features. We're part of the body. And I, I think sometimes we, we hear platitudes about the church. Well, you are the church. And, and there's an element of truth to that as a group. But all by myself, I'm not the church. I'm just part of the body. In the same way, my thumb isn't my whole body. It's part of the body. And we don't get to choose our features. And sometimes we say, well, I wish this was different. I wish this was different. And, well, we don't get to do that. God chooses. And the same is true in his body. And so we work for unity. And so the first section of chapter 4 discusses this unity. Even the spiritual gifts that are discussed in, a little further on in verse 16 are for the purpose of adding stability and bringing maturity to the body as it grows in edification in love. That's chapter 4, verse 16. So the first aspect of our walk is we're to, we're to walk in unity. How are we doing? The second one is there's to be a distinction in our walk from the world. And I would say if you look back at chapter 1, verse 4, as we began this letter, as, as Paul is writing to this church, he says, just as he chose us from before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. He chose us for a purpose, that we would be holy, that we would be blameless. And so that means we're going to have to live differently. He accepts us. He adopts us. 
And so it says in verse 17 of chapter 4, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles. Don't keep living like the unsaved. That's why I said earlier, we, we can understand where the unsaved are coming from because we were there. But they don't understand where we are because the God of this world has blinded their eyes. In fact, it talks about the darkness. Their understanding is darkness, darkened. It says in verse 17, they walk in the futility of their mind, that, that they can't actually come to the biblical conclusions because their understanding is darkened, verse 18 says. They're alienated from the life of God because the ignorance is in them. It's like trying to peer through the fog. It's not an issue of your, your eyesight. It's the fog is in the way. That's, that's the case for the unsaved. And so we're to be different from the world. That we're to recognize this. So the call to holiness means we need to change from our former way of living without Christ to walking in Christ. You know, and I find in my own life that if I ask, okay, does this make me more holy it clears up a whole lot of other questions. Like, what's wrong with? Like, maybe I need to ask first is, how does this make me more like Christ-like? Not, can you show me chapter and verse? Because our goal ought to be, I want to walk worthy of the calling as one who belongs to Jesus Christ. So in chapter 2, verse 10, it says, we are his workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has works prepared for every one of us as believers. Are we walking in them? We're to be different from the world, or as Romans 12 says, be not conformed to this world. Be transformed. So we walk in distinction. The, the, the third thing that we see is we're to walk in love. Beginning in chapter 5. Now, if you think back to chapter 2, verse 4, after laying out our horrible condition, it says in verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. It's not because we were lovely or lovable that God loved us. It's because of his rich mercy. We were dead, defiled, defiant, deserving of judgment. And so now it says in chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. So the example we have is Christ. And the example we'll see is that sacrificial love, and that's illustrated at the end of chapter 5 in the illustration of the, the husband-wife relationship that Christ gave himself for the church. So do we give of ourselves? Do we give of ourselves for other believers, for the body, for the church? You know, that, that takes sacrifice of our time, of our energy, of our resources, maybe our agenda. And yet that's what verse 2 is speaking of in chapter 5. That it is a, an offering and a sacrifice to God. So we walk in love, that sacrificial love. The fourth thing then, beginning after that in verse 8, is we're to walk in light. It says in chapter 5, verse 8, For we, you were once darkness, but now are you light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit, or the fruit of the light, is all goodness, righteousness, and truth. 
finding what is acceptable to the Lord. And so we're seeing how this statement in chapter 4, verse 1, is really going to be developed through the rest of this book. Now, if you think back to chapter 2, or look at chapter 2, it began by telling us what life was like in that darkness. That those who were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, that's in that darkness, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who works in the sons of disobedience. And then it goes on in, in, and says in verse 3, we once conducted ourselves according to the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like everybody else. And so I said, but now we're to walk in light. So instead of following the course of this world, and the God who's blinded their eyes, walking in that darkness, we've been called out of darkness into light, live like it. You know, have you ever tried to walk in the dark? You know, you get up in the night and you're walking along and, and you, you're, you don't really want to turn on the lights and you tend to be a little more careful or if you aren't, sometimes your toe helps you find furniture that you didn't realize was quite that close. And it can be painful. It's so much easier to walk in the light. Well, do we walk in the light of God's Word? Well, I don't know what to do. Okay, are you in God's Word? You know, we've been called out of darkness. We're to walk in light. What's that like? It's to display what is good, what is righteous, and what is true. That's what we find in these verses. The fifth thing that we see is we're to walk in wisdom. And that begins in chapter 5, verse 15. See then that you walk circumspectly. The word is carefully. We sang about that. Not as fools, but as wise. Look at how you walk. And don't be foolish. I've, I've told our students when I, I do a, a, a chapel at the beginning of the school year on how to survive the student handbook. And, and I, I've told them, I said, you know, I wish that we only had to have four rules. We wouldn't need this handbook. We could put them on a three-by-five card. Love God, hate sin, put other people before yourself, and don't do stupid stuff. <laughs> because there are some things the first three don't cover that kids will do. There are some things adults will do. <laughs> but that's really what we're being told here. Walk carefully, not foolishly. You know, when, when our children were young and we were living in Maine, all of our bedrooms were upstairs. And, of course, we had a wooden floor. And with the, the heat, heat and cold, uh, sometimes boards get loose under the carpet. And they squeak. In fact, when we recarpeted the rooms, I went through with a, a drill gun and put, you know, I, I put screws into that, trying to get rid of the squeaks, and I still had a squeak. And it was frustrating. I'd, I'd taken time, I'd done them every so many inches, put drywall screws into the studs and trying to get it tight. And there were places that if we walked down the hall, it would squeak. Well, when the kids are sleeping, the last thing you want to do is wake them up. The rule in our house was if you wake them up, you have to play with them. And if they haven't had enough sleep, that's not going to be any fun. And so there were places when we would walk down the hall that we knew not to step. We had learned this is not the place that you want to step. You need to step over it, step on the other side of the hall, but there's, it's going to squeak there. That there were certain places that we had to do. Folks, we have to understand there are areas that you know because of weaknesses in your life, if you're walking carefully, 
that it's not going to help your spiritual growth. Because of situations in the past, because of struggles in the past, because of weaknesses in your life, maybe old friends or old habits or places, that if you go there, if you step there, it's not going to help you. Well, walk in wisdom. Don't step there. It's not that hard. Walk circumspectly, not as fools. You know, and if we make our decisions based on how do, how do I grow spiritually? See, to walk wisely in a wicked world means that I'm not going to step in certain places because it's going to arouse thoughts, emotions, feelings, desires that are going to lead me the wrong way. And so when we speak of walking in wisdom, that's what we're referring to. And, and beginning in verse 22 of this letter, it deals with very specific relationships then. That wisdom being applied to the next area, which is walking in harmony. And so in our various relationships in life, we're to walk in harmony with other people. And it begins with the husband-wife relationship, beginning in verse 22. Then in beginning in chapter 6, it deals with the parent-child relationship. And then it goes on and deals with, in, in the context, it's, it's speaking of the servant-master today, or today we would apply it to the employer-employee relationship. But we're to walk in harmony. As much as lies in you, live peaceably. Now, not every one of these relationships is going to be dealing with believers. So the unity, beginning in chapter 4, is speaking of in the church. Now it's talking about our other relationships that we walk in harmony. And it's clear that we are to strive to honor the Lord and please Christ, as it says in chapter 6, verse 5, that we are doing the will of God from the heart. We're not a people pleaser. We're, we're conducting ourselves in a way that we would say, I want to please God. I want God to be glorified. I want to serve Christ. And it's coming from our heart. And then the, the last thing that we see really outlining the book in the conclusion of, of this book is that we're to walk in victory. Chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. The final section instructs us how to walk in victory, putting on the whole armor of God. And if you, if you think back or look back to chapter 1, beginning in verse 19, it, it tells us about the great power of God, the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His mighty power which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. So the resurrection power that we read in chapter 1 is available to us for victorious Christian living. So if we're not living in victory, what's the problem? Well, have I put on the whole armor of God? And it goes piece by piece then in, in chapter 6 and tells us what we're to do. And that we're to, to put this on. And so with that knowledge, why are we defeated? Well, if we're defeated, we're not applying it personally. Or maybe we're not walking wisely or walking in the light. We, we, you know, as I said last year, we want victory over sin, but not quite as much as we want to still toy with sin. And so we have to strive, as Hebrews says, to bloodshed. That we go to battle with our flesh to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And so the question then is, are you progressing in your Christian life? How are you doing today? If we apply this point of the manner of our walk, are we progressing? Are, are you taking the next spiritual step? Or maybe the other question we need to ask is, what is the next spiritual step you need to take? Where do you need to grow? 
in Christ-likeness because none of us have arrived and we're not going to. We're not going to arrive in this life but he who has begun a good work in you is going to continue to perform it until the day of Christ. It will be complete. We look forward and with anticipation to being with our Lord in heaven but we need to be striving to please him now. The third thing I want us to see, though, from this passage, and maybe I could have flipped the order on these, but is we need to consider the measure of our walk. Walk worthy of the Lord. What what does it mean to walk worthy? Well, the, the Greek word that is translated worthy here is axios. We get our English word axiom from this. An axiom is, is an established rule or principle or law. It's something that's self-evident. It's accepted on its own merits in mathematics. It's, it's something that is equal. The equation equals in logic. It's the, it's the self-evident statement. Okay, so what's the point? The point is that it ought to be evident in our lives that when we understand our relationship with Christ, that our life then reflects that. It shouldn't be, you're a Christian? That really should not be the question. Now, there are areas where we struggle, and we all say, you know, there are areas I'm not doing as well as I should. But we ought to be striving to grow. And when we understand what God has done and is doing, we will live in such a way that it's obvious that those truths are being applied to our lives. And we don't always see it, but others will. You know, something's different about you. You may run into friends and say, you know, something's changed. And, and realizing that's the work of Christ. It's the grace of God in your life. And Satan will try to bring up things from the past and beat us up over things and realize, you know what? If we confess and forsake our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us. It's under the blood. And so the idea here then is the idea of, of being in balance, of having the same worth, of walking worthy. Now, none of us is worthy. But we can walk in a worthy manner. Walk worthily is the idea here. Walk worthy of the calling. What does that mean? What is the calling? And what is your calling? I mean, we, we read this, but what are we talking about? Well, it's the idea of remember where you came from. Chapter 2. Verse 1. You are dead in sin, defiled, defiant, delighting in wickedness, desiring the fleshly pleasures, and mentally keeping those. And because of that, we deserve God's wrath. For Gentiles, it was worse. We were far off. We were distant from the Old Testament covenant promises, without Christ, without hope, without God in the world. That's verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. But now we're brought near by the blood of Christ. So what is that calling? Well, it's the calling, the blessing of salvation, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. It's that wonderful hope of his calling, the riches of his inheritance, chapter 1, verse 19. It means that we're united with Christ in his resurrection, raised to walk a new way of living, as we say when somebody is baptized. That it's a change of our life, that that we're seeking to exalt him. We're, We're raised by his resurrection to sit in the heavenlies with him. So we're reconciled to God and others by the death of Christ. We're part of that new humanity, the body, the temple, the household of God. All these phrases are used. We're adopted. We're saved. We have a vast wealth of God available to us. So why are we asking for dimes? 
What's our prayer life like? God's gracious calling brings great privileges, but it also brings those responsibilities. And so when I look at what God has done for me, the other side of that equation then, when I'm saved, is I want to live in a way that is worthy of what he's done. Not to earn his favor, not to earn merit, no merit of my own, his anger to suppress. My only hope is found in Jesus, his righteousness. But when I understand that, I want to live in such a way that will please him, or I should be desiring that. So the question then is, does our behavior reflect that we have been impacted by this truth? Does it reflect the mercy of God? Do we, do we demonstrate that? Do I, do I seek to serve others or is it always I want my needs met? Do I get upset when somebody's unkind or, or things don't go my way? Am I walking in unity? Am I seeking to put away all malice and be kind to one another as Christ has forgiven us? See, this is what we're speaking of. Is, is our walk consistent with our calling? And you can look through the New Testament and find this. And really, the New Testament epistles is where we find instruction for the local church. Philippians 3.14 says, I press toward the goal, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. As we read in Colossians 3, that we're to set our affection, our minds on things above. In 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 and 9, it says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord. And then Paul said, Or me as prisoner. But share with me in the suffering of the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Folks, don't be afraid to suffer for righteousness because we're in great company with Christ, with his disciples, with those who have gone before. Read Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 3.1 says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ. That we would look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That we would set our minds on things above. It means that we're going to be careful. So are there areas of your life that are sticking out that, that can be a hook? You know, it, it, one of the qualifications, in fact, the overarching, I believe the umbrella qualification for a pastor is that, that is above reproach. It doesn't mean he's perfect, but it means there aren't hooks, handles to hang on to. But I think there's a principle for all of us because it's those things that stick out that often trip us up. You know, when I was in college and as a student, we, in the morning we had to, you know, dress up, we had to wear a dress, dress shirt, tie, dress shoes, and we, it was doing a lot of walking on concrete. Well, concrete can wear out your shoes. And so I found that by putting metal taps on my shoes, it really would save the heels, the shoes would last longer. And there, there was a place right near campus where I could go and do that, and, and they would take care of it. And, and so that worked well. Well, then I learned that metal on wet cement doesn't work well. So I decided it'd be better to get, they, they had hard plastic. And so that would work. And, and being cheap, I found I could actually buy them and put them on myself and, and save the money. And, and they would come with the little nails that you put in and, and you, you know, just, I just had to hammer it on. The problem is I didn't have the equipment to put my shoe in the right place, so I just kind of hammer it. And I found sometimes the, the heads of those nails stuck out. It wasn't a big deal because I've got plastic and normally that wasn't a problem. 
And so one, one day they were having a special event. We called them an artist series. And it was in the, the auditorium that would seat 7,000 people with a sloped, polished concrete floor. And, and the auditorium seats that pop up so that, you know, when you stand up, the seat pops up so there's more room. Well, I, I'm there with my date, who is not my wife, um, and I'm sitting there. And we're on the end of the row. Those were our seats. And this couple came. They wanted to get in. And so we stood up, and I leaned back to give more room, and I put my weight on those heads of those nails that were sticking out. And I sat down really fast. Thankfully, I was leaning back far enough that I hit the chair, it came down, I kicked the seat in front of me, and my date is laughing hysterically as I'm sitting there in all this embarrassment. And the guy walked by and said, yeah, but you're really embarrassed now. And I turned my day and said, I'm really embarrassed. She said, no, you're actually not. I said, well, okay, I'm not, but I know I should be. <laughs> so I thought it was pretty funny too. Now, it, it may be funny on a slope floor in an auditorium when it's a minor situation. It's not funny when it's our spiritual life. And we're leaving those little things hanging because they're not that big. And they'll trip us up and we're headed for a fall. Walk wisely. Our walk needs to reflect. In fact, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15 is going to talk about a soldier's footwear. If we're going to be victorious, we need to have the right footing. We're not given a list of do's and don'ts, but we're, we are given some things that we're to put off, but we have to weigh our walk in the light of what God has done and what He's doing in Christ. Be worthy. Live in such a way that we are reflecting the worthiness of our calling. Not that we're earning merit, but because we realize what Christ has done. To be worthy of the calling of Christ, we must reflect the character of God. So are you pursuing a life that reflects the character of God? His mercy, His grace, His love, genuine Christian belief must result in a conduct that reflects the new life that we have in Jesus Christ. The unity that there is in Christ alone in the church that was created by Christ. We're to work, we're to endeavor to protect that unity. We don't have to create it, but we do have to work to guard it. And we'll be looking at that, Lord willing, in coming weeks. But understand, how are we walking today? First of all, you have to be a Christian to walk as a Christian. And if you're here today without Christ, your walk is not going to earn it. But if you will trust what Christ has done, you can have that relationship. And then as believers, how are you doing? What is the next spiritual step you need to take? What little things are sticking out in your life that are going to trip you up or send you down? And are we truly availing ourselves of the great wealth of our calling? Or are we asking for dimes? Let's look to them. 